If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From advances in weaponry and warships to the use of telegraphs and photography, the Crimean War triggered a whole host of innovations. In the final episode of our three-part series exploring the conflict – Professor Andrew Lambert takes Rachel Dunning through some of the key advances that emerged from the Crimean War. They also consider the conflict's legacy as the first modern war, as well as some of the parallels that can be made with the war in Ukraine today. Welcome back to the third episode of our series examining the big questions of the Crimean War. So in episode one, we looked at the origins of the war, and in episode two, we examined the key battles and moments. Now, in this final episode, we're going to consider the end of the conflict, the technological innovations it produced, and then finally, its legacy today. So, Andrew, to start us off, what can you tell us about the immediate aftermath of the war? What happened in the, the different countries involved in the conflict? The end of the conflict is greeted by the major powers in very different ways. The Russians begin planning to completely change the structure of their society. The status of serf, which basically means people who belong to the land, uh, will be abolished in the early 1860s to free up human resources to industrialize Russia. A massive rail building program we put in to make sure they can move their armies around their empire much quicker next time somebody attacks them. And they will rebuild their coastal defenses, particularly in the Baltic, and convert their navy from a navy of sea control ships to a navy of coast defense ships. So Russia responds to the war by hunkering down, uh, reinforcing its defenses, and taking a sabbatical from being aggressive. But it's only a short sabbatical. Within 20 years, they're attacking Turkey again, uh, marching through the same territory they were in the 1850s. So nothing changes. The Russians keep marching westward. The French immediately launch into the high watermark of the Second Empire, this brief period when Baron Haussmann is rebuilding Paris, the kind of spectacular, grandiloquent Paris, which is littered with Crimean War references. So you've got uh, Rue Sevastopol, you've got Rue Malakoff. You know, it's the Second Empire saying, hey, look at us, we won battles just like the First Empire, and we've built a glorious city to put all of this in. And they hold the second great exhibition, so the 1851 British expedition, the 1856 French exhibition. And Louis Napoleon will go on to have another 14 years grandstanding as the great man of Europe until the Franco-Prussian War cuts him off at the knees, and that's the end of, of French empires of that sort. Um, and he will be a, a real thorn in the side of the British as he's trying to change Europe 
The British don't want Europe to change. They want to stay the same and carry on doing business. Uh, Louis Napoleon wants to do very different things. He wants to create Italian and German solutions which France can control. So basically, he wants to be the puppet master in, in a revived, nationalized Europe. The British greet the end of the war by staging an enormous naval review at Spithead. The fleet that was built to knock down St. Petersburg is put on parade on St. George's Day, April 23rd, 1856, in the presence of the Queen, the Prince, Prince Consort, and, and all the other assembled British dignitaries, and the International Diplomatic Corps from London, who are shown exactly what the British will do to any of their coastal cities if they happen to be annoying. This is a very, very potent demonstration of technological mastery, of industrial strength, uh, and of determination. Five years later, there'll be a crisis with the Americans during the American Civil War, and the news that this force is being mobilized is enough to persuade the Americans to back down. So this is deterrence. Look at what we've got, look at what we can do. And next time you think you're in a squabble with the British, remember this, because this is a capability that you can't deal with. The Ottoman Empire drops back into a relatively quiet state. The Ottomans are not hugely interested in reform, but they've carried some out. And their empire will continue to suffer from the pressures put on it by rising tides of nationalism. In the Balkans, nationalism driven by Russian and pan-Slavic agendas will become a big problem in the 1860s, 1870s and 80s. So the Ottoman Empire is going to suffer losses, and it's not an accident that the First World War is started by issues between Austria, Hungary, and Russia, uh, propelled by activity in the Balkans. The Crimean War has a long legacy, and this is part of it. That Austro-Russian standoff, uh, that's the thing that starts the First World War. That's really interesting. I was going to ask you, actually, did the Crimean War in any way set the stage for World War I? And it seems it, so. It does, because this is the place in Europe where things are moving. In the rest of Europe, things are static. And it's the, the occasion of what happens at Sarajevo, the assassination of the Austrian Archduke, and the clear involvement of the Russians. And of course, the legacy of that lingers on into the 21st century. There are people in Serbia who are cheering for Russia today. They see that ideological and ethnic and religious connection as, as more important than anything else. So it, it polarizes and divides communities across Eastern Europe. So Turkey is on the decline. Britain is ultimately obliged to back Turkey again in 1878. And there's a major confrontation. A, a fleet is assembled for the Baltic and the Russians back down again. So it's, it's a constant pattern, trying to hold all of this together to stop that great conflict breaking out. You know, the British don't want World War I or World War II or any other world wars. They want things to be fairly stable um, without allowing aggressive powers like France or, or Russia to change the balance. Did geographical borders change as a result of the conflict? I'm curious. Yes, geographical borders do change. The border around what we now call Moldova shifts a little bit. Um, there's a, some very minor tinkering on the Caucasian border, but in the main, no. So it's it's not a grand geostrategic shift. They're, they're very small shifts. But things that had previously been in Russian hands are no longer. So the Orland Islands are demilitarized by law, and they've never been remilitarized. 
the Russians' ability to control traffic entering the River Danube is removed. Um, this is something that explains why the Austrians are so involved, because it's their primary economic lifeline. So the River Danube issue draws the Austrians onto the same side as the British and the French. The Russians were damaging Austrian trade as well as, as British and French. If we look at the casualties of the Crimean War, how brutal can we consider the conflict if we look at it as a, as a whole conflict? It's difficult to know how many people died in the Crimean War because the French Second Empire never published any official figures and was certainly lying when it gave out some, some kind of ballpark numbers. French casualties in the Crimea were much higher than they were reported. Uh, British officers and civilians who were on the spot were very clear. In the second winter of the campaign, the French army was decimated by disease. And it was a much bigger army than the British one that had suffered badly in the previous winter. British total casualties, around 20,000. Mostly army-linked disease-related. Naval casualties, tiny, absolutely tiny. Um, a few combat deaths, some disease deaths, really very, very low uh, casualty rates. The Russians, I've seen figures as high as a million for Russian loss of life, mostly outside the battle, mostly disease, hypothermia, malnutrition. The Russians are moving very large military forces from central Russia to the south in winter, uh, and they are taking a heavy toll on that. They don't have any other means of transport. In the Russian Empire, most things are moved by sea, if you can. Well, you can't because the British and the French control the sea. So there's a lot more marching to do. Um, troops going into the Crimea in peacetime would have gone down the rivers. They would have got on a ship at Odessa and sailed to Sevastopol. But with the war on, they have to march everywhere. And the Russian roads are not good and the supply system is not good. So they, they suffer very heavily. The French possibly 150,000, maybe 200,000 uh, total. Not, it's, it's really not clear. And there seems to be no interest in, us, in acquiring these figures. French governments ever since 1871 have been remarkably anxious not to be connected in any way with the Second Empire. So no French president wants to look like Louis Napoleon III. So they tend to back away from this. And until recently, even the Second Empire style was kind of a little bit out of fashion. But it comes back now and again. So there's a lot of casualties. The British get very excited in a negative way about their casualties. The French and the Russians really try not to talk about them. That's interesting. So the Crimean War is often described as the first modern war. Uh, what is meant by this when people say it was a modern war? And is it an accurate assessment, do you think? It is the first modern war because... There are some things happening in this war that we do associate with modern warfare. Um, infantry rifles. The British are making their rifles using machine tools and interchangeable parts. This is the first time in the history of warfare that complex military weaponry has been made in a factory using interchangeable parts. So the 1855 infantry rifle, is it's all standardized. If you break a piece, you can put another piece in its place. Before that, all infantry weapons were handmade, and if you repaired them, you had to make a special part to replace the broken one. The Russians and the French aren't yet doing this. The French will, will catch up later, and so will the Russians. They're using rifled 
weapons on the battlefield. That's modern. It's the first time that a submarine is used by a navy. It doesn't do anything, but there is a submarine. There are underwater mines, big minefields laid by the Russians, steam-powered and armor-plated warships, progenitors of, of the warships of the First World War are in service. So there's a lot of modernity there. But they're still dressing up like Napoleon was around. Uh, they're still fighting at very close quarters. They're still marching in very tight formations. So it, it has these kind of transitional elements. It's neither one thing nor the other. It's a bit like a hybrid car. It's, it's got an old engine and a new engine, and, and it's not quite clear at any one time which pieces of the machine are working most effectively. It's a war driven by old men, many of whom fought in the Napoleonic Wars, including Tsar Nicholas. He was an officer in the Russian army during the march to Paris in 1813-14. In These people had military experience. Lord Raglan lost his arm at the Battle of Waterloo and throughout the conflict referred to the enemy as the French uh, because they had indeed removed his arm previously. I am curious how the British found fighting alongside the French, given that it, you know the Napoleonic Wars were so fresh in their memories. The first great assault on Sevastopol was staged for the 40th anniversary of Waterloo, deliberately as a way of saying, no, that's all over and we're all friends now. Uh, it was a fiasco. Um, a lot of lives lost, not a successful battle. So uh, Raglan was so depressed by it, he was dead within three days. It reminded him, obviously, of losing his arm, but it also reminded him that uh, the French were and the British were not on the best of terms. As the war went on, the British and French liked each other less and less, and both of them referred very positively to the Russians as, as good enemies. How interesting. And had the war continued into 1856, the plan in the Black Sea was that the, the French would invade southern Ukraine and the British would march into the Caucasus and they would fight their own campaigns uh, without having to be bothered with allies. Alliance warfare is not easy because as a professional military leader, your job is not just to win the battle, it's to win the battle in a way that serves the interests of your country more than the country that you're fighting alongside. You know, at the end of every great Grand Alliance war, you have a Grand Alliance fistfight about who's got what. And both world wars... That's the big battle. It's not the battle with the enemy you're going to defeat. It's the battle with your allies. At the end of the Second World War, Stalin's in the room. He's your ally. How do you deal with that? Um, and how much of Eastern Europe is he going to grab? Well, the answer is most of it. So there's the, the breakdown of, of Anglo-French relations is a very significant issue. And you find it in political correspondence. You find it in diplomatic. You find it in, in parliament. And you find it in, in the services, particularly in the army. Uh, both armies come to detest each other. Um, the Navy's less so because the French never think they're on the same page as the British. <laughs> that makes sense. The British make this very clear. The Royal Navy is, is significantly superior in size, capability and, and everything else uh, because it's the primary arm of the British state, whereas for the French it's the army. Uh, the British Army would like to be the primary arm of the British state, but it's, it is it is necessarily the Navy. Um, so I wanted to look at some of the various innovations that came out of the war in a bit more detail. You've mentioned weaponry already. Photography is definitely one. So some would say that the Crimean War was one of the first complex to have been properly photographed. Um, can you tell us a bit about how it, how it was documented by photographers and maybe even tell our listeners some photos that they can go and look for? 
outside of this episode? So photography was really in in its early days. It's a very long, cumbrous process with some very unpleasant side effects. Um, not many pioneer photographers lived to draw their pensions. Uh, the chemicals were seemed to have been very, very aggressive. It was popular with large numbers of people who could afford it. Uh, so it was, it was an elite habit. Um, one of the most famous amateur photographers in England was called Albert, um, as in the Prince Consort. And he and the Queen had a very large photography collection, which included pictures of the Baltic fleet sailing in 1854. Uh, the first picture of a fleet sailing. Uh, so taken just off um, Osborne House, where they lived. So Roger Fenton, who goes to the Crimea and takes photographs, he's the man who trained Albert to take pictures. So he's, he's coming very well recommended. He's sent out by an agency which is going to market the photographs when he comes back. There are French photographers. There are other British photographers there. So this becomes a magnet for people who have these skill sets. And some of the photographs are actually used as the basis of illustrations in publications like the Illustrated London News. Because in the 1850s, there is no technology yet to print photographs. So you bring the photograph home and then you engrave it and then you print the engraving. And very often you can see the photograph and the engraving and work out how the engraver has quite often enhanced the photograph to make it more uh, more effective. And of course, this technology isn't much use to catch anything that's moving because the exposure times are very long. So all of the famous Fenton pictures are very static because that's the only way you can capture an image. If they're moving, it's blurred. The technology is, is moving on. But it's going to be the First World War before you start to get really dramatic images on the battlefield as the technology has miniaturized and becomes much easier to handle. But this is, yes, the first photographed war. And then the telegraph too, this is obviously being used as communication from the battlefields. Um, was How was war reporting? How did that progress during the, the Crimean War? So if we go back to the Napoleonic Wars, war reports are something that turn up at some stage by some random process and appear in the press whenever. There, there is no connectivity between events and reports. We're, we're used to a 24-hour news feed. We're used to being able to know everything all of the time. By the late 1840s, it was possible in parts of Northern Europe to communicate relatively rapidly using the submarine telegraph cable and, and overland telegraph cables. In 1852, the British lay the first cable across the English Channel, which connects them up with Paris. And by 1854, they have a cable all the way to Balaclava, uh, which launches off across the Black Sea from Varna. This means that if you pay enough, you can send your message back to London. But most of the things that are printed in the press in London from the Crimea are sent back in handwritten form because they're not that, the timing is, is not that critical and the costs are too high. It's used by governments to interfere in the command chain. And one French commander-in-chief, Marshal Canrobert, resigned as commander-in-chief because the government in Paris kept sending him messages to change his policy. And he exchanged command with one of his junior generals because he didn't want to be bothered by any more uh, telegraph messages. His successor, Marshal Pellissier decided that the best answer to the telegraph um, and its messages was to rip it up and throw it in the sea, which he did. 
So the Telegraph allows governments in London and Paris to interfere in the making of decisions and the development of strategy. There's a critical moment in late April 1855 when the British and French in the Crimea agree to go and open up the Straits of Kerch and secure the Sea of Azov. British, French, Turkish troops landed by mostly the Royal Navy are going to open the Straits and then the Royal Navy will take control and attack Russian logistics. At the last minute, a message comes from Paris ordering the French Marshal to assemble all of his troops and prepare to, for a grand assault on Sevastopol. So this operation collapses, leading to very bad relations between the British and the French. The French are embarrassed and the British are furious. And the operation eventually goes ahead after the French commander-in-chief has resigned. But that's the kind of impact it's having. It's removing ultimate responsibility from the generals commanding on the, on the scene. Um, one can imagine what Wellington would have done in the peninsula if the government in London kept sending him messages about how to how to fight his battles. He, he too would have thrown it in the river, I'm, I'm sure. So it's a massive change, and it helps governments reach into places where governments had not been able to reach before. They're able to impact the conduct of operations in a way that had not been possible hitherto. And that is transformational. Of course, within 20 years, the British Empire will be entirely stitched together by submarine telegraph cables. And the, the British will be able to talk to everybody at any time, anywhere. And by the First World War, they're absolutely critical to the, the waging of global conflict. But in this war, it's just a few cable telegraphs and it's the impact they have. And the questions they raise about the different roles of statesmen and senior military leaders that space in which senior military leaders operated is being compressed. And in the 21st century, it's almost disappeared. It's not possible for senior military commanders to make strategic level decisions on their own. They will always have to refer them back to headquarters. They will always be in a space where they need to, to get authorization for that. And that changes the business of war. War is now made by politicians uh, is executed by warriors, but war is made by politicians. And then something that we haven't talked about is medicine. Um, so nursing and the treatment of the wounded changed in the Crimean War, thanks in part to the work of Florence Nightingale, who will be familiar to most people. Um, could you tell us a little bit about her role in the Crimean War and, and how her work made an impact? Yeah, Florence Nightingale is, is a very interesting phenomenon, um, the one thing that the press wants in this war is a middle-class hero. And of course, British wars are fought by aristocratic officers and working-class soldiers. The middle classes stay at home, make money, and read the newspapers. So the nearest thing they find to a middle-class hero is a heroine, using the old vernacular, who's only just middle-class. Florence is very posh. You know, she's not called Florence for fun. She was born in Florence. Um, her sister is called Parthenope because she was born in Naples. You know, and she knows most of the cabinet quite well, some of them very well. So she's very posh, very well connected. And her job is not the nursing thing, it's the management. She's the hospital manager who turns a ramshackle effort to support the wounded into something that actually delivers. So she's taking control of organizations that are trying to help but don't really know how. She has the experience, both of practical and of a managerial level, to create an organization that can deliver more effect. 
it's not entirely clear that what she did in the war saved that many lives. Um, some of the statistics which she collected suggested that her hospital at Scutari wasn't particularly successful in, in saving men's lives. But it was successful in improving the conditions in which they were operating. So in, in that sense, it may have worked. The Russians have ladies doing the same job in Sevastopol. So it's, it's a kind of universal thing. The French already did. The French army always had taken um, women with them who worked in essentially doing delivering that effect. The British army had not. Uh, and so for the British army, it was a bit of a shock. But the latest research makes it quite clear the, the medical problems in the Crimea were solved by the army's own doctors in the Crimea, not by Florence Nightingale down on the, near Istanbul. Uh, she was dealing with evacuated casualties, but the Crimean disease problems were solved in the Crimea by pretty straightforward contemporary medical knowledge, uh, cholera outbreaks, other kinds of epidemic diseases were handled by professional medical men who knew what they were doing and kept most of the men fit enough to, to function most of the time. Florence Nightingale's success is in managing the way that this news is delivered and the way that it gets into the public consumption. So there's, a, there's this desperate willingness to find somebody who's exemplary in a war. And it's very rare you find exemplary people in war. So she ends up as a pro very prominent figure. She uses that celebrity very positively. And obviously modern nursing is, is one of the outcomes of that. But that's not the same as saying what she's doing in the war is highly successful nursing. It's you know, the the uh, the balance of opinion there has has shifted away from the the late Victorian uh, veneration to a, to a, a more I think properly balanced questioning approach. Um, many people contribute. We're we're familiar with Mary Seacole, the Caribbean lady who went who went to the to the Crimea primarily as a business opportunity. She, she's running a, a hotel and a, an eating house, you know, but she's also taking part in, in medical support to the troops. So a lot of people are contributing in many different ways. And we, ha you know, we have to understand these are normal human responses, but this war, we've got a media which is able to report this much more immediately. And people who have expertise in handling media, and Florence Nightingale is one of them, uh, create quite a powerful resource base from that, which they then use, in her case, to develop other campaigns. Remember, Florence Nightingale's obsession wasn't with nursing, it was with sanitation. She was obsessed with, with cleanliness, uh, and that's something we do associate with nursing, but that's that's her main contribution. The clean thing is 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 where she's coming from. Hospitals were filthy, and she understood that filth and disease went together, so she made them clean. And I wanted to ask you about Frenchman Alexis Sawyer, who worked for the British and visited the troops in the Crimea and was shocked at food. Um, so what, what's his story? Do you mind telling us? Yeah. Alexis Sawyer is a celebrity chef. We're all familiar with celebrity chefs. He worked for the British establishment. He was the chef at the Liberal Party's Reform Club. So many members of the cabinet would have dined on Sawyer's high-grade output. Um, knowing mid-19th century French cuisine moderately well, um, it would have been very rich. Uh, he goes to the Crimea uh, to try and advise on food, and he finds the British army doing what it usually does, which is eat very basic stuff, not very well cooked. Um, and he suggests that they could do an awful lot better if they knew just a little 
about the basics of cookery. And he develops them a portable stove. So the ancestor of that little camping stove that everybody's used outside their tent uh, is something Mr. Sawyer comes up with, a very economical way of using scarce fuel to generate uh, warm food in a place where everybody is, is frozen cold. So a combination of the food being hot and slightly better cooked than usual, it's good for morale. You know, an army marches on its stomach, as Napoleon famously observed, and if your stomach is empty, you don't march anywhere. Yeah, of course. As we're nearing the end now, I wanted to talk a bit about how we think about the war today and perhaps some of the misconceptions that still exist about it. So many accounts of the operations in Crimea focus on the famous cavalry charge in Tennyson's poem, um, certain battles get more prominence. How should we remember the Crimean War and what are the things we're forgetting? I think that's important. Every generation needs to revisit the past and this is a bit of the past that I think current events have made an awful lot more relevant. Um, the Crimea is, is right at the heart of 2023 as well as the 1850s. We need to understand that the Crimean War that dominates memory is a late Victorian construct. All history is a construct, but this is a late Victorian construct. It's, it's about heroic cavalrymen. It, it's about some of the glories of war, if there are any. And it's about, in many ways, a, a lament for a lost age when things were easier. That Crimean War is all about the Crimea, it's all about the army, and it's all about death and suffering. So the measure of consequence is the scale of, of human casualty. If you look at it like that, the Crimean War is, is all happening in the Crimea, and the rest of it really doesn't matter. If you look at it in terms of strategic effect and the ability of the Western allies to block, prevent, or even in some cases push back Russian aggression, it's everywhere. What the British are doing in the high north, uh, in, in the White Sea, what they're doing in the Baltic is hugely important. The real pressure on Russia is its backward economy and the vulnerability of its establishment, particularly in the Baltic, uh, to pressure from the sea. So if we remember this as a maritime economic war driven from the sea in which every British soldier who fired a gun in battle had been moved at least 3,000 miles by ship, uh, those ships either chartered by, run by, or actually commanded by the Royal Navy, uh, the fact that they still had food to eat, whether they were cooking it well or not, is because the Royal Navy made sure they got supplied. This is a classic British maritime strategic effort. It's globally deployable. Some of the ships that fought in the Baltic, for example, spent the winter going to the Caribbean to remind the Americans not to invade Cuba. Uh, and then came back again to fight the Russians. So the ability to move resources rapidly and efficiently from one campaign to the other. At the end of the war in on St. George's Day, the British have a grand parade of the fleet, um, and most of the big ships from that fleet then sail to the Crimea to bring home the Crimean army. So seeing just how flexible and powerful this organization is, even with relatively limited resources, uh, should, I think, get us away from the idea that a, a cavalry skirmish involving 620 British troopers is at the heart of the war. The heart of the war is a struggle for global strategic and economic dominance between Britain and Russia, and the British don't lose this war. The grand old late Victorian version of the war leaves you with the impression that somehow the British didn't really win. 
they did. Um, Russia was shattered as a pre-industrial uh, state. It was forced to rebuild itself to, with revolutionary com consequences. This war opened up the Russian population's access to great cities, and great cities are where great revolutions come from. Without this war, you don't get a Russian revolution. You don't get um, transformational change in Russia. It makes France briefly, once again, the dominant military power in Western Europe, but that's only briefly. Uh, it's then knocked over by, by re revived Germany in 1871. So from 1871 onwards, Britain is actually in a very strong position because the Germans are not a threat to British interests. The French are now worried about the, the Germans and the Russians are not in a position to operate either. The last 30 years of the 19th century are a great period for Britain because it doesn't face a major strategic threat. So this war has finished the Russians, the Franco-Prussian War has finished the French, and the new German Empire until 1900 isn't looking at being a challenge to Britain. So it's largely a, a geostrategic success. Uh, e the economic warfare weapon works very well in this conflict. Russia is bankrupted, it is broken economically, and that's the critical element in bringing the war to a conclusion. If you have no money, you cannot fight, and the Russians have no money. What are we doing to the Russians today? We're cutting off their means of raising money because nothing has changed. I was going to ask what parallels, if any, can be drawn between the war that's going on today and the Crimean War of the 19th century? The parallels between the Crimean War and the, and the current conflict in Ukraine are enormous. Um, the Ukrainian army is far more effective than the Russians had expected, just like the Ottoman army. Uh, the Russians are relying on the export of bulky produce, mostly agricultural or, or, or mineral, uh, for their economic well-being. Um, nothing has changed. The Russian army uses mass tactics and is willing to accept heavy casualties to secure tactical objectives. Nothing has changed. The Russians have a lot of artillery. Nothing has changed. Um, Russian autocrats have a vision of how the world should be, which is not entirely consistent with reality. Nothing has changed. Putin does idolize Tsar Nicholas I. The state portrait of Tsar Nicholas hangs in his, the anteroom of his office, I'm informed. And when the guardsman opens the door to let Putin through for his audience, that's a Romanov double eagle on the door, and the guardsman is wearing the uniform of a mid-19th century Russian guards regiment. Putin is a Russian imperial revivalist. He's not post-Soviet. He's not a communist. He's a Russian imperialist. And we have to understand that what we're dealing with in 2023 is a Russian empire, that wants to extend its control over territories that in the 1850s were part of Russia. So if you read the book that, that Putin reads, um, it's perfectly natural. The Crimea should be part of Russia. So this modern war has very much its roots firmly back in the 19th century and before, before then, really. The thing everybody forgets is that Russia is different to most of the rest of Europe because it was occupied for 200 years by the Mongols. Um, the Mongols created modern Russia. It's an administrative element of the Golden Horde's empire. And they created a regime in which nobody had any personal rights or any property rights, that political power was unaccountable, and that everything within the empire belonged to the autocrat. Nothing has changed. So we're looking at a massive cultural division between Western Europe and the Russian lands. Everywhere where the Mongols operated, 
it's a different part of the world to the Western Europeans who avoided that. So what we see with Russia in this war and in other wars, the absolute determination to secure strategic opportunities, to build and extend the depth of territory around the Russian heartland. The Russians want room in which they can absorb offensives. So quite near where the fighting is today, there's a great battlefield at a place called Poltava, where Peter the Great defeated the Swedes. Uh, It's one of the great battles of Russian history. It's in the Ukraine. Um, The great battle of Kursk, 1943, that's in the Ukraine too. So we're looking at Russia using territory as a strategic buffer, as an economic control zone, and the pattern does repeat. And are we seeing Putin use rhetoric in the Russia-Ukraine conflict today that that echoes the rhetoric that was used by the Russians during the Crimean War? Putin's rhetoric is very much in line with the the rhetoric of the mid-19th century Russian Empire. Yes, nationalism but of course an imperial nationalism, the Russians as the imperial people in this multi-ethnic, multicultural empire. Russia isn't a consistent population of people who are ethnically or, or culturally connected. They, are, they rule over many different people. The British Empire is a thing of the past, but the Russian Empire is a thing of the present, and according to Putin, it has a future. And he's quite willing to extend that empire beyond uh, where it currently is. The Russians of the 1850s are just the same. They take it in, they they have a process, it's called Russification. They take over your country and then they make you speak Russian, use Russian law, spend Russian money, just like the Roman Empire. Remember, the Romans, they didn't offer you the chance to become a Roman. They said, you're now a Roman, you will speak in Latin, you will use our money and go pray to our gods. You have no choice. You've now become part of the Russian project. Uh, it's not a voluntary thing. This is this is ongoing. At the end of Putin's originally invasion plan, knock over government, uh, wipe out sympathizers with the with Western values, send in a lot of Russian educators to remind the Ukrainians that they're actually Russians. Get everybody speaking Russian again. Get everybody buying into the Russian project. Nicholas I was doing this. Nicholas II was doing this. Sibelius writes Finlandia to remind the Finns that they don't have to speak Russian and that they have their own country. It's not just the Ukrainians who fight back. Everybody fights back against this in their own different ways. All empires provoke this kind of response. uh, And the Russians are provoking it in the 1850s and in the 2020s. Sadly, a lot of things don't change. My final question to you is we, we're right at the end now, but as an expert on the Crimean War, what was it that drew you to this field? Why do you find it so interesting, this topic? No, thank you. That, that's a great question because the, the standard answer is, well, you know, the battles and all that stuff in the Crimea. For me, it's nothing to do with the Crimea. It's the Baltic. Um, many, many years ago, I wrote my PhD about the British and French naval campaigns in the Baltic. And that made me realize that the Crimean War that everybody was consuming simply wasn't big enough. It wasn't ambitious enough, uh, and it wasn't intelligent enough to explain what had happened. The idea that a tiny British army of less than 50,000 men at best had had any impact on Russia um, 
you know, is, is simply nonsensical. The British are operating with 250,000 French troops, about 15,000 Sardinian troops, another 30,000, 40,000 Ottoman troops. Now you're talking about a big army that can defeat the Russians. But 50,000 Brits are not going to deal with the Russians. But in the Baltic, a British battle fleet is more than capable of dealing with everything the Russians have. And that's where the war is, is primarily fought. So we've got the war named after the wrong theatre, but not even that. We've got it named after one bit of the wrong theatre. You know, I think we could go back to the original Victorian term, which was Russian war. It is the only full-scale war we've ever fought with Russia. We've had long and hostile relations with them over many centuries, but this is the one war where Britain and Russia are going at each other as primary adversaries. Uh, and so, to this day, it is the Russian war. You are listening to Professor Andrew Lambert in conversation with Rachel Dinning. If you've enjoyed this three-part series, then head over to historyextra.com forward slash Crimean War to find a whole host of content to explore, including a comprehensive guide to the war, a timeline of the key moments, and an article written by Andrew on the Crimean War's legacy. And if you've read all of that and listened to all three episodes, you can take our Crimean War quiz to put your knowledge to the test. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.